This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. Joining me today is my first duo on Becoming Educated and my first returning guest. And my guests today are Zoe and Mark Enser. Zoe was a classroom English teacher for over 20 years, as well as head of department and school leader in charge of improving teaching and learning. She is now lead English specialist advisor for Kent with the Education People. Mark has been a geography teacher for the best part of two decades, as well as a head of department and research lead. He's the author of Making Every Geography Lesson Count and Teach Like Nobody's Watching, and is a TES columnist. Together, they have written the excellent Fiorella and Mayer's Generative Learning in Action as part of the In Action series from John Cat Educational. So, hey, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Good morning. Hello. So, um, just uh, like to, I like to start my interviews with a little whistle-stop tour of, of our careers today. So, Mark, you've been a previous guest, so we'll come to you second. So, Zoe, could you give us a, a little whistle-stop tour of, of your career? Yeah, um, as you say, 20, it's actually 23 years um, since I first kind of stepped into a classroom um, in my career, although initially it wasn't as a, an English teacher. Um, I'd left university a little bit kind of unsure about direction I wanted to take, felt that I didn't really want to leave um, kind of learning behind. I had a young son, though. Um, I started university when he was three. And... Uh, I really wanted to do an MA and I liked the idea of teaching adults. That was something that appealed to me. And um, I thought, well, the only way I'm going to do that is if I can fund it. And um, my, my, the school that I'd been to, the school that was kind of around the corner and I, I'd kind of grown up with and my older brother went to and things like that, they were advertising for a learning support system. And I thought, well, that could be something that's quite interesting um, and will potentially allow me in a year's time to, to be able to go and, and, and do a master's and, and follow other kind of routes that might allow me to go into teaching adults. And um, I think it was probably about day two after they, they very kindly gave me that job at Passmore's Academy, um, where I thought, no, I love it here. I absolutely love it. It's something felt right. And it wasn't just that I was kind of returning to somewhere that had been familiar in my youth. It was, you know, the, the, the kids were fantastic. Um, they quickly decided that I needed to be working um, with a student who was at high risk of exclusion coming up from his primary. So it really was a bit of a baptism uh, of fire. But I, I absolutely loved it and quickly found myself being involved in things like summer school, the literacy and the numeracy summer school. And then with some gentle and not so gentle nudging, um, it was agreed that I would do my training there. Um, so after I'd spent two years working in that capacity, I trained to teach with them. Um, then in my NQT year, I became the exams officer, which um, would not be what I would recommend for NQTs now. That would, that would be something I would suggest was avoided at all costs. Um, but after that experience, which did, it was an experience, it did give me a very different perspective. Um, I then moved into secondary department, again at, at Passmore's Academy. Um, and then decided I needed to move to, to Sussex um, as my son was getting a little bit older, I wanted some different experiences and um, moved to second in department and whole school literacy there and then moved into another Sussex school where I became head of department leading media and film and drama as well as English. And uh, I stayed there for kind of 14 years in the end and moving into the kind of senior leadership team role leading on ITT 
um, for the high and working with highest prior retainers and then eventually CPD and teaching and learning and um, it's fantastic and, it's, uh, and but now you know I've, I've wanted to to experience something a little bit different and so I'm working across Kent as an advisor with the education people but I, I hope that's potted enough as I say there's quite a lot to fit in. <laughs> no, it's such a, such a great journey from starting in the, in the classroom as a teaching assistant all the way up to what you do now and advising the whole of Kent it's a wonderful journey journey <laughs> it's an enjoyable journey. <laughs> yeah, and um, Mark, it's, it was the it was back in March when we last spoke. Is is uh, the world has changed since <laughs> since we last spoke? But is there anything um, update from your career since then? I'm still teaching geography, still a research lead. Um, I'm now an ELE as well as an SLE. So my business card's getting longer. <laughs> I'm an evidence lead in education, working with Durrington Research School, which is going to be interesting this year, I think. Uh, otherwise, no, still, still teaching the volcano. <laughs> I love that. Thank you very, very much. So we're going to unpick some of the ideas from, from your latest book, um, Generative Learning in Action. And how we do it, I've just if, if any of you want to answer and jump in and interject it at any point, please do. Um, so I want to start off and, and ask you both, what is generative learning? And, and also what place does it have in, in our educational landscape? Um, I think the simplest way to think about generative learning is it's the way that um, we create meaning. It's uh, you know literally the, the word generate. So we've generated meaning, generating understanding uh, around the learning that's taking place. And, um, and in, in the uh, introduction or the forward to our book that uh, Logan Farella um, wrote, he kind of explores how that, that kind of sits from his perspective uh, as a researcher. Um, but... It's interesting because it, it was a phrase that was kind of coined in the 1970s by Frederick Whitlock. Um, but it does sit within this kind of whole history of kind of pedagogy and our understanding of how learning works. So although he started using that term, I think it was 1974 when he wrote a paper on it initially, um, it has its roots in things like Piaget and Bartlett's uh, schema theory. So it goes back to that idea. And that's very important to this idea of how we create understanding, and how we create meaning. Um, and it also sits alongside things that people are really familiar with in terms of the kind of cognitive science and so cognitive load theory is really important again um, in relation to this um, and ideas about metacognition and motivation um, uh, Fiorella and Mayo talk about that in terms of the uh, the mighty M's so for me that's really interesting that it, it isn't just something that sits alone it, it sits kind of within and a lot, you know, around and, and kind of following on from all of those different elements to build up this kind of picture of how we learn and how we create that kind of deeper meaning as well. And, and, and it's, it's taking it kind of beyond the superficial and making sure it's fully embedded and that students are able to kind of explore that. And I think that's where the kind of the SOI model really comes into it. Certainly. So, so Martin, can you, can you share with us, what is the, the SOI model? Yeah, so the SOI model was devised by Richard Meyer um, as a model for how learning takes place, if it's going to be generative. And the, it's um, a kind of three-step process where pupils, first of all, select so the S or the SOI models. They select information. So rather than just regurgitating an entire page of information that they've read or regurgitating what they've heard back to the teacher, they're selecting from within it. So they're having to think hard. That's kind of where the cognitive science comes in. You know, Daniel Willingham's memory of the residue of thought. And they've got to think hard to select the bits that they actually want. They then organise that information into a new form. 
So again, they're not just reproducing some of the information verbatim back to um, wherever they got it from. They're, they're trying to organize their answer into something. And that then gives us our kind of eight different generative strategies. They organize it into a form, and then they integrate it into their prior knowledge. So they're making those links within their web of knowledge into their schema. So, okay, this new bit of knowledge goes with that thing that I already know. There's the links between them. Right, and just for, for listeners that maybe aren't sure, can you, can you unpick a little bit of the idea you said of schema and schema theory? Yeah, so the schema theory says that we have this kind of um, interconnected web of information about either um, particular bits of knowledge or, or events that, that have taken place in our lives and our experiences. So a kind of an example, I think that um, Fiorella gives in the thought of our book is um, somebody um, running through an airport. Your schema theory really kind of kicks in them because you can make sense of what you're seeing. Oh, they must be running late for their plane. That's why they're running through here. They've got their luggage with them. This all makes sense. Whereas if you saw somebody dashing frantically through a supermarket, you'd be very confused by what you were seeing because you wouldn't have anything to go, well, that links to what else I know about this scenario so I can make sense of it. Um, we do it with kind of words and terms as well. So if I say something like a stenosphere, to a geographer, their kind of schema almost like lights up with these connections to that word because it means something and they know what it means and they can link it to the idea of the plate moon and stuff like that. If you say it to somebody who's never heard the term before. Like in English. <laughs> it, it, they might maybe look at, I don't know, the, the, the kind of the, the, uh, Greek, uh, and go, oh, that means kind of weakness and spheres, but, but it will mean very little and it'll be a very isolated piece of information. So schema theory is the way we integrate information into our prior knowledge. And isolated or fragmented information isn't very useful. So when we're kind of bombarded with lots of little bits of disconnected information, that doesn't stick with us. We're much more likely to discard it. And what we want to do when we're thinking about schema is we do want to make those connections because then that is going to be really strongly bonded and much more likely to stay with us for the long term. It certainly is. And, and this is where the, the eight strategies for, that, that Mark mentioned come in. So, so, so what are the, the eight strategies that were identified by Fiorella and Mayer that generate learning? Okay. Um, and these are the, actually, to, to be honest, there were more that they explored, but these were the ones which, um, you know, to, to borrow Dylan Williams term, these are the kind of the better bets or the best bets um, for what would really generate that. So um, they've got summarising, Mapping, um, concept mapping, graphic organisers, um, that kind of thing. Drawing, imagining, self-testing. Um, kind of that comes in quite a lot with retrieval practice that a lot of people are using at the moment. Self-explaining, teaching, teaching other kind of students um, what your understanding is, and enacting. Brilliant. So we're going to unpick just a few of them that, that I've selected a little later on, but. Before we do that, can, can you explain why, why would we use generative learning strategies in our classroom? I think we would use them because we want pupils to learn things. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a radical idea in education, I know. And, and we do have to be careful that we think, about what do they learn? And, you know, BS to warn about a learnification in education. We just, you know, learning anything isn't very good. But we, we have a, a body of knowledge that we think pupils should have and we want them to have it. It's the gift that we're giving to them, is this, is this knowledge. And we want to pass that gift on, and we want them then to have it, and to be able to do something with it. You know, it's a bit like the parable of the talent. You know, we don't want to pass this on for it just to be buried somewhere. We want them to have this and invest it and grow it and develop it, and they can only do that if they've learned it in a meaningful way, 
where it is linked to their prior knowledge and it's linked to other topics and they can they can understand the depth of what they've learned so i think that's why we use generative strategies is making learning meaningful what i think is also really interesting about the generative strategies is if you can teach them well and get students really confident with that it does uh, um, move it up them into a much more independent way of learning potentially and so as they they kind of grow and develop and get the kind of knowledge that's required and know how to do that again coming back to this metacognitive idea you've got students who've got tools for dealing with their own learning as opposed to being kind of overly reliant on that and that's something that particularly Richard Meyer is, is um, interested in in his um, way of looking at the research is particularly interested in, in how kind of various independent ways of, of approaching learning might benefit students so that's kind of his particular field with it. I think if nothing else and hopefully isn't if nothing else they're fantastic revision strategies. If you're if you're struggling as a teacher and you get people going I don't know how to revise teach them generative strategies because they work beautifully for that so I teach them in class how to do something like concept mapping as an in-class activity and I explain that this is what they need to do themselves at home when they're revising different topics and so we never get that I don't know how to revise nonsense because they do they have eight different strategies they could be using. Brilliant I love, I love that I love how you, you said that it was the gift that we're giving them and helping them to, to learn things. Um, you write that you could see generative learning as the reverse side of the Rosenstein's coin. What makes you think this? <laughs> well to, to me, you know, there's been so much discussion about Rosenshine, and I think um, the strategies that, that he talks about and that, that Tom Sherrington then kind of develops and, and lots of people have explored, they're really powerful, um, but they, re they focus on what the teacher does. It focuses on, you know, what is it that we're doing when we're delivering this material? Um, but sort of thinking about this as the reverse side or, or even the, the what next it's putting the focus on the learners. And so I may have introduced uh, beautifully uh, some a really complex idea in small steps for a student, but then what? You know, how do you know, I, I can do that 10 times in a, in a lesson and my explanation might be fantastic and I might have modeled and I might have done this, and I might have, but actually what do the students do to make sure that learning stays with them? So thinking about it in that way for me, I thought was you know, quite important to be able to kind of see it from their perspective and to think about what they're doing. So I'm modeling, well, what are they going to do with that? Well, hopefully what they're going to do with that is they might do some kind of self-testing around it, or they might turn that into a concept map. Or, you know, so actually it's making sure that it's the, the next step, it's the what next. And for me, thinking about the learner as opposed to the teacher was, was quite powerful. I think, Lots of schools have really invested in Rosenchine, which is brilliant, and, and I love it. I, I think Rosenchine is such a great starting point for any teacher. And, and I do think that those, you know, you see schools where you know, everyone now has their copy of Tom Sheridan's Rosenchine in action. It's fabulous. They now need this. This is year two. So you've embedded Rosenchine's principles, and the teachers are doing that, and you're sure they're doing it well. Now you get them this, and you, and you show them what they do in the classroom with it. I like that. I like that idea of developing the, the CPD curriculum for, for teachers. This is Rosenshine. This is your instruction. Now let's focus on what the learners are doing and, of course, helping them both learn and give them strategies to revise and helping them integrate that into their schemas. I love how that all kind of merged together. Thank you. So we're going to unpick a few, of the, a few of the strategies. There's eight of them. We're not going to go through all eight because that would, that would take us all morning. But for each of them in the book, you wrote what it is why and how to use it and also what was interesting potential limitations which i, I, I found extremely useful 
With this in mind, can you share a little bit about why and how to use the strategy of summarising? Um, so, well, summarising, um, I think this was quite an interesting one and when I was first reading it, because it's something I've used for decades in English. Um, you know, so, summarise what we've just said, summarise those key points, summarise this text. Um, but coming back to this idea of it being generative, I've really reconsidered how that works to make sure that we're getting the most out of that process. So if we're using summarising for a, a generative learning strategy, and you can use um, summarising in different ways, it doesn't have to be used in this way. But if you are doing that, what you're again doing is you're getting students to select the appropriate information from the text. So they've get, again, really thinking hard about what the important information is. When they put it into a coherent summary, immediately they're having to organise that to make sure that it makes sense. Um, and that's something that they've got to, got to check on. It's, it's got to kind of flow. It's got to um, have kind of coherence with that. And then when they're happy with that summary, um, and what I would do at this stage in my classroom is I would look at a few, share a few, think about whether all of that key information was in there, then they would be integrating that. Um, I think the problem, and you know, don't, don't want to rush to it, but the problems with summary, um, of course, is if you are doing it as a written activity, um, it needs to be kind of appropriate in terms of literacy skills, because if they're thinking hard only about how do I put a sentence together, or how do I spell that word, or, or how do I make a coherent structure for this, then they're not going to be able to be thinking hard about the information. So I think with all of the strategies, it's really important to think about um, what it is that that's bringing for the students and whether they've got the skills there. I think there's, um, you need to teach it really well if you're going to do any of these, but particularly with summarising, I think it's important. I really liked um, exploring how Cornell Notes uh, lends itself to this though, because that's a beautiful way for students to start seeing the power of the summarising and bringing all these ideas together. And Adam Richards did a, a fantastic case study for us. And he's also continued to explore that. And you can follow him on Twitter and, and see some of the examples he's got there as well. But um, with Cornell Notes, obviously what they're doing when they're kind of putting their notes together or you're giving them some notes, which is a, another way people use them, is they're being given that information and they're selecting that information. They're then having to make those selections again and think hard about the most appropriate choices when they come to that summary at the bottom. So um, I think Cornell notes have, have got real power because it, it's kind of pulling together different elements. If you've then got the questions and key points down the sides, then you could even employ that for the self-testing element of things too. So um, summarising is it's an interesting one, but I think if you're using it generatively, you really need to think about making sure that the students really know how to do that and they've got the skills to be able to engage with that. You can do verbal summaries, but they can be quite hard to capture because you're using more of the working memory then. Certainly, thank you for summarising that. Now, my next question was going to be on to Adam's bit about Cornell note-taking. So <laughs> just, just, just very quickly, can you share with the listeners who might not have heard about Cornell note-taking, what that actually looks like? Okay, so uh, the page is divided into three. Um, there's a, a large section which is um, in the middle. It's quite hard, not, you know, I want to kind of physically show it. But there's the section in, in the middle where um, you put the main notes and they can be presented in lots of different ways. They don't have to be written in kind of sentences or bullet points. Um, students can be putting ideas down in various ways there. Down the side of the page, like in the margin, that's where you would put kind of key points or questions that you might want to return to from that. So again, you're having to think about what's relevant or 
points to come back to from the notes. And then at the bottom of the page, you have the summary. And, and ideally, for it to be generative, the students should perhaps cover over the notes and the questions and then try to do that from memory because using the memory is going to be really important. So look over them, then cover it over, then try and do that from the memory because, again, that will embed that much uh, more long term. Certainly, and it's a wonderful, wonderful revision tool like we spoke about earlier on. So thank you for that. Um, Mark, can you talk us through how to use the strategy of self-testing? Yeah, yeah. I think um, retrieval practice is something that a lot of teachers are now very, very familiar with. Um, it links to kind of um, Rosenshine's idea of starting a lesson with a, with a recap of, of prior learning. So a lot of people are now doing that, you know, you start the lesson with a bit of a retrieval quiz which may or may not be a generative form of self-testing. To be generative, we need pupils to be thinking hard about their answers, selecting information, organising their answer into some form of structure, and also finding links between topics and integrating that information. So simply a quiz where they have to recall a historic date, it might be useful, and you might want to do it anyway, but it may not be generative. It may not be generating learning. It's maybe strengthening uh, recall for the future. So it's back to kind of purpose and kind of making sure that the form follows the function. So we might want to do it for one reason, we might want to do it for another reason. So if you want to do self-testing in a generative way, one thing that we found, we did a trial with the Institute for Effective Education um, at my school, uh, myself and Emma Smith, the head of history. And the idea was to see whether uh, retrieval practice through low status quizzing was leading to more meaningful learning as kind of assessed by longer form questions at, at the end of the year. And what we found is that yes, unsurprisingly, retrieval practice was very useful. That wasn't a huge surprise. But we actually found there was a big difference between how effective it was in geography and history. And in geography, it was having a much greater impact than it was in, in history, where the, the, the gains were, were there, but, but were much smaller. And in the evaluation, we looked at the type of questions that we were asking. And history had stuck, had stuck much better to the original brief and were asking kind of very um, uh, recall of dates, places, people, just you know, one word, quick answer, what can you remember? Whereas in geography, we had drifted and we were asking them questions where they had to explain things. So why is it hotter on the equator? Rather than simply, where in the world is it hotter? So pupils were having to go through the SOI model of selecting, organizing, integrating information as part of the testing process. And the gains were much, much larger. So, some follow-up work would be really useful to check that, that really was the thing that was making a difference because it wasn't what we set out to investigate, but I think it's probably a promising line of inquiry. So self-testing, um, slightly more complex questions that make pupils think hard. I, I really love the fact that it was because you didn't stick really strongly to the brief. <laughs> you, you've got this whole other way to explore things and a, and a whole other direction to think about. And I think that's something as teachers we probably shouldn't be afraid of, of doing and, and thinking, well, that might not have been the question that we wanted answering, but it's raised something brand new. Let's explore that and, and don't be worried that it didn't quite go in the direction that you wanted. Well Sir. done, Emma. Use it. <laughs> <laughs> they found a way to make the, the, the learning a little bit more powerful. And the, the final strategy we're going we're gonna to unpick is, is one that's a little bit harder and, and a bit more interesting. And that's the strategy of imagining. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how to use that and the limitations of that? 
Yeah, that, that's an interesting one because for me, um, imagining could have quite a lot of limitations because um, I, I, I discovered a while ago that I'm, I've actually, um, I'm aphantasic, which sounds really fancy. But what it means is I don't have visual images in my head. So where other people can close their eyes and picture a character or picture a place, I can't do that. And, and I wrote a piece for um, Ted's re uh, a while ago about that. Um, so when I was thinking about imagining, I was thinking, well, this is clearly something I haven't used, can't use. I know I've got a good imagination. It just doesn't do this kind of visual thing that kept coming up. But actually, on reflection, I do use that quite a lot. And it isn't just simply a case of saying to students, close your eyes and, and imagine a process in science or close your eyes and, and imagine a character or, or a setting. Um, and we were talking to Tim Taylor recently, who wrote the case study for this, um, uh, who does a lot of work around mantle of the expert. And uh, I was then reflecting on the lesson that I would for years start um, Inspector Pauls with. And so the first thing I would do is I would show them some images of kind of 1912 and an industrial city and uh, with some characters kind of, uh, kind of place there and start getting them thinking and imagining what that world is like so again I, I was getting them to think quite hard and, and imagine and, and select again information from that that they were going to find useful as they kind of continued we would then kind of enter this uh, this world where um, we were going to investigate this event that had taken place and try to make sense of this event and then I would slowly um, drip feed them into some information then very much taking on the role of detective investigating what had gone on there um, and as they were kind of given this information, sort of drip-fed information about characters and situation, again, I'd then start to ask them to organise that into some kind of coherence, to kind of come up with some kind of ideas, maybe some predictions. Again, if you're predicting, you're having to select that information, organise it in order to take that forward. The whole time through that process, though, um, the, the kind of the last part, the integrate, I didn't want it to go in. I didn't want them to integrate that yet because they didn't have all the information. And actually, I was playing a very long game in relation to that. Um, they would start to integrate pieces, but then I might throw in a new piece of information and then they would have to reorganise and think again about that before it was integrated. So th there was this kind of destabilizing process that, that was going on there. And actually that was usually very successful. Um, I, I probably was thinking I was doing it in a bit of an edutainment way, <laughs> but actually when you, when you look at the process in terms of imagining and generative learning, what was happening there is they were having to think hard about the information, select it in order to make predictions because they were imagining on a very, a sort of simpler basis and a less long-term basis, although you've talked about this market with geography, you might ask them to predict what would happen um, in kind of the next stage of a process that they were familiar with. Um, or you might ask them to, to perhaps kind of picture what would be going on. Um, I'll go coastal erosion because that sounds like it's a thing. Oh, <laughs> and then I'll pass over to Mark to talk about how he would use imagining <laughs> well, yeah, I guess you do. You, you kind of do, you know, how would this landscape look in a hundred years? Yeah. You know, and then you're having to See? imagine what changes <laughs> may have taken place um, and selecting, organising, integrating information that allowed you to make that prediction. It's essentially an imaginative process. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. Um, 
Moving on, Zoe, you spoke at research. Sorry, well, you both did. Sorry, I've, I've, I've not yet, I've not yet watched Mark's uh, address in full, but I, I, it's on my to-do list. But I, I watched yours the other day, Zoe, and you spoke about the importance of staff development and using generative learning. Why is staff development so important? Staff development generally, or in terms of generative learning, because I could probably talk for hours <laughs> on both of those. Um, in, in terms of generative learning, it is, it's back to that kind of purpose, um, really understanding why you're doing something. Um, and it does take an investment. So if we were using, for example, going back to the idea of summarising, um, in order for students to, to generate that learning, to be able to be confident you're using it. There are processes there that you would need to consider across a whole school. Now, then that needs to be taken away and contextualised for those individual subject areas, but they have to really understand what the aim is and why they're doing it and how it all kind of comes together. So thinking about the SOI model, thinking about well, what, what does a good summary mean? What, does, what do we actually include in that? So staff need to have that time to understand it and to really reflect on that and explore it, practice it, come back again and, and kind of reconsider it again. And I, and I suppose, you know, when we're talking about generative learning, we, we're talking about those generative learning processes for adults as well as students, because they need to have time to kind of go through these and, and kind of consider and select and organise and those kind of things. More generally, CPD, I, I think, is absolutely, you know, we, we get nowhere if we're not investing in staff development. We, we really are, you know, and, and um, if we want schools where they're continually moving forward, not because, you know, there's something wrong, but because they've got this kind of restlessness, they, they, they want to make sure that they're always giving that, you know, that something, doing something better, you know, that Dylan William quote about, you know, teachers need to kind of continue to improve, not because... That they know they're not good enough but because they know that they can be better and we need to kind of keep focusing on that and it, it actually it, it makes colleagues happier it may, you know, it's motivating it, it's uh, it you know makes you feel connected with your job it, it gives you if it's done well that kind of agency um, and, and that feeling that you are able to do these things. And, and I think that is so important. But in terms of generative learning, I think there is the potential without that for some of these things to become a bit superficial and not have that kind of core purpose around it. I think that always worries whenever I write anything, whether it's kind of an article, <laughs> a test, whether it's a book, it's this fear that in 10 years' time, I'm the source of the next kind of edgy myth. I've got about, there'll be students going, you know, like, like we do now, you know, how did we get to that point with VAK and, and, and differentiated for learning <laughs> stuff? They'll be like, you know, how did the answers destroy education? <laughs> and, and, it could, and, and, and if we don't line this up with good public school CPD, you will get sessions where people are told, you need to get kids to do imagining. Don't. Get them to do imagining, <laughs> or you need to get people to do self-testing, I and mean, they do it really, really badly. Mm. Um, so I've already said, you know, you need to read Rosenshine, Principles of Instruction, get that right. Then they're going to go and buy this book and get that right. Then our next book is on the CPD <laughs> curriculum. They can then get that and just double check that all of this stuff has been implemented well. <laughs> Please. I, I think the idea of you becoming a leaky mutation. Yeah. It's a constant <laughs> one. <laughs> Certainly, certainly I fear. So we've come to the, the end of that interview. We've, we've unpicked a little bit about generative learning. We've looked at three strategies and so on, and, and, and I'd like to thank you for that. Um, before we go on to what I call my final three, Mark's experienced the final three, so we'll do it a little bit differently and we'll kind of focus on, focus on Zoe a little bit more in the final three, if that's okay, Mark. But 
put that mark. If people are ready for, for their year two curriculum, where can they, they buy generative learning? Where can they connect with you both on social media? Where can they read? You both write quite a lot. So where can they, can they read more of your work? And of course, find out more about you. Okay, um, well, you, you can buy our books in, in any good, you can't buy them in any good bookshop, no, that's, that's a lie. Terrible. They should be stocked in every good bookshop. You can buy them on Amazon, really, or the John Cat website. Um, Have they still got their deal on? They have until the 21st. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but the Amazon are currently selling for just £8, which seems ridiculously low. It is kind of a crazy, crazy sale. Um, so you get it from Amazon. In terms of where, where to, else to find us, we both write for Tess. Um, we, we tend to crop up everywhere. We're quite hard to avoid. And we're very easy to find on Twitter. I'm at Tensor Mark, so he's at Greenbow Runner. And she largely just have Twitter installed straight into her head. So it's a constant <laughs> flow of tweets. So very, very easy to, to connect with either of us there. We also blog at uh, Teaching It Real as well, if, if you wanted to kind of go through the back catalogue. But there is a, a fair bit there. And um, videos on YouTube on the Teaching It Real that, that's YouTube true, channel. Yes. So yeah. Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> You're sick of us quite soon. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed your, your videos with Link. You've, you've done three now with Adam, Tim and Freya. Freya. And, and we are actually, later today, we were um, seeing Tajinda and, and exploring her case study too. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm, we'll be interviewing Adam for the Becoming Educated podcast pretty soon off the bat. March recommendations. So thank you very, very much for that. Um, but I want our final three. So, so these are the final three questions I ask every guest. And um, what I'll do is, is I'll ask Zoe first, and then if Mark, if you want to add and, and contribute at the end, then please feel free if your mind has changed since. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so the first one, Zoe, is what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career? Do I have to pick one? <laughs> um, you can have two. Well, so I'm supposed to say, teach like nobody's watching, I'm assuming, or <laughs> making every geography lesson count. I don't know anything about geography at all. Um, I, I really, really love the Making Every Lesson Count series. I think for me, that was um, a bit of a gateway into lots and lots of other areas um, and, and really shaped some of my thinking around uh, development of teaching and learning so uh, the, you know Sean and, and Andy I'm, I'm kind of very indebted to for getting me thinking about things in that way um, but Nuttall keeps coming back to me the, the hidden lives of learners and that's something that almost haunts me you know I wouldn't say I quite wake up at two in the morning like when I had exam classes but <laughs> it's kind of there in the background all the time and, and I think that links really nicely to generative learning and thinking well what is going on with the learners well, you know, we might assume that we've done this wonderful thing and then all this material we've given them is going, but actually, how are they generating their understanding? Because it might not be going through quite the same processes and be stored in there for the same reason. So I know I've been cheeky and actually mentioned more than one there, but, you know, it, it's an important text and I, I would suggest that people do read that too. Certainly, and you're not the only one that, that hijacks it. Some people try to get through, sneak three or four in by just adding words on the end. Uh, Mark, have you, do you want to add? Um, I probably have gone for the same. I think last time I was on, I said making every lesson yeah. for the same reasons, really, and I'd probably go for Hidden Lives of Learners now as well. I think it's an incredibly important book. Right, thank you. Um, the second question, Zoe, is if you could give one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? one again it's so hard I, I can't do this with books or films either um I, it would probably be 
to that that can kind of give that time to reflect um nothing is ever kind of a, a are finished with none of us are finished and, and 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 no one thing that ever happens in the classroom is is the kind of sum of everything so giving yourself time to reflect on those things walk away i can remember having some really tricky classes in my early years of teaching and uh, i needed to be able to walk away and really reflect back on that learning both for my sanity and to and to move students forward um and, and so that that is kind of my my big one i would say to people but i think alongside that is probably be quite kind to yourself you know so none of us are perfect and we've got a long way to go and uh, sometimes we expect a lot of ourselves very quickly you certainly do uh, and mark i would just remind teachers that the job will feel whatever time you're allotted to it um if you if you if the job can't end there's always more that you can do so decide when you are willing to work and when you're not and that's it what we prioritize within that time get that done leave the rest walk away it isn't worth it. Don't but, wake up at two in the morning thinking about Graham Nuttall's book. Yeah. <laughs> and if you do, don't wake me up to talk to me about it. <laughs> That's probably very specific advice for one teacher. Not everyone has to, has to listen to that. Certainly, I love, love that notion of, of prioritising and reflecting and, and, of course, being kind to yourself. So thank you. And my final question is, um, what do you think most gets in the way of, of just great teaching in our classrooms? Uh, probably lack of time. Um, if, you know, if, if you were to ask, I think, any teacher in any school, in any context, um, what do you need more of? That they, they do need more time. And I, I think Mark's advice is really important, but it's something that leaders really need to consider. If, if we want to kind of make improvements and we really want to develop, we've got to consider the time and we've got to value the time of, of people working in schools and think about how it's being spent. I, I, I'm quite a fan of the idea of thinking about time um, in, a, in a monetary way in order to value it, not in order to kind of cheapen it, but in order to say, you know, if, if I'm going to ask you to do something and, and I want you to devote time to it and do it well, I've got to think about what that kind of time cost is and indeed what else we need to perhaps limit in order to allow that to happen. But I, I think, you know, the number of times I've heard teachers say, I just need more time um, to be able to think, to be able to do, to be able to, to, to practice. Um, that's really important. It certainly is. And I love that idea of attaching a cost. I read recently a Dylan William quote when he said that we teachers waste about 4.8 million billion pounds in, in marking every year. So I thought, I thought that was a lovely way to, to yeah. reshape our thinking on that. Uh, and Mark? Probably a, an entire other podcast, but I'd say a lack of clarity about purpose, I think is one of the biggest barriers. We, we try and do too many things in schools. We don't have kind of a general idea about what our school's for. We get confused. We then don't quite know what we're teaching, what we're teaching for, and we don't know why we use the strategies that we use in class. What do we actually want out of this? And I think when we confuse our purpose, we end up blindly trying to do everything at once, getting ourselves tied up in knots and burning out. And we just need to have a, a better sense of why we're doing what we do. Certainly. Well, that brings us to the end. So I'd like to take this opportunity to, to thank you both so much for giving me up, giving up your time on a Saturday morning. Uh, thank you both so much for, for your output. I, I thoroughly enjoy reading reading both your work. Um, Zoe, thank you for, for coming on the podcast today. And it's, it was a pleasure talking to you. And Mark, thank you for being my first return guest. <laughs> educated that means a lot so thank you very much talking to you thank, thank you, you.
Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time. Teach with joy.